If you'd like to, turn over to Romans chapter 5. That fifth chapter of Romans. For the sake of time this morning, we're not going to read it all the way through uh, in the beginning. We'll just go verse by verse, but I want you to see the first verse here. We'll read that real quick. (coughs) Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you this morning in Christ's name. And Lord, we beg that you would open this passage of scripture to us. Lord, that you would be our teacher. That we might see your son here. That we might see him high and lifted up, exalted in all his glory. And Lord, we might see that we are, in fact, Lord, sinners complete in him, lacking nothing. Lord, be with us. Bless the the conference down in Florida be with our pastor as he's gone and we ask Lord your word would go out in power any words preached today we ask these things in Christ's name amen now I fully recognize that the chapter designations and the verse designations in the scripture they're completely man-made and this thing we call Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is actually just somewhere in the middle of this long epistle that Paul sends to the churches in Rome But I love how this begins. I love that this is the first verse because it begins exactly where you should begin when preaching the gospel, with Christ and what he has accomplished. Now read that first verse again. It says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It does not say the following is a step-by-step manual telling you how you can be justified. And it doesn't say you can be justified if you do this, this, and this. It says this is a fact, that there are presently people being justified. They are justified. This is something that has already taken place, and it was by one means, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by him alone. That's where you begin with preaching the gospel. He has justified his people, past tense. It's over. And to dispel any question about who these people are, Paul tells us in the same chapter here. Look across the page, look over at verse 6. Notice in the first verse he says, We, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Well, who has this peace? Verse 6, For when we, here's the we, were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, if I want to know if I am one of these people who have been justified, I'm currently justified by Christ, and that can't be changed, it's very simple here. He says they are without strength, not weak. They lack all ability. All ability to keep God's law. All ability to come before God and bring anything that comes from them that can be acceptable unto Him. They lack all ability to do that which is spiritual, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to muster some love to Him. They lack all ability naturally. They are completely and utterly reliant on Him for everything, absolutely everything, up to and including faith, without strength, and they are ungodly. You know what that means, the direct translation? Wicked. That's the word. 
These are people when they stroll through their heart, the darkness of that heart, and they find that one thing. They find that one thing that on the surface appears good, appears wholesome. Maybe that's a good thing. Upon further examination, what they find that it is backed with self-serving, self-motivated motivations and intentions, self-glorying, it's all sin, it's all wickedness. There's nothing, I have absolutely nothing without strength and ungodly. And here's the wonderful part. This is the glorious part. Christ gave himself for these people, for his enemies. That's an ungodly man against God. People who by nature, naturally, hated him, wanting nothing to do with him and would have killed him, given the opportunity. These are the people he gave himself for. And Paul goes in on to talk about that. Look in verse 7. It says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. And what he means is a righteous man, a self-righteous jerk. A person who makes you feel intimidated when they're around you because of their pious demeanor. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. Look at how pious I am. They try to intimidate folks. For a righteous man, scarcely, scarcely, People love him. Scarcely you might find someone to die for that man. It's not impossible, but it would be scarce. Go on. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man. Some would even dare to die. A worldly good man, someone who's generous, kind, humble. You can find plenty of people that would love that type of man. you probably find somebody willing to die for him, right? But look at verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is something you do not find amongst men. It doesn't exist in the human realm. A man loving his enemy and giving his life for his enemy. And that's exactly what Christ did for us. When we were enemies, before we were given that new nature, before the Lord sent that spirit into our heart and gave us that new heart, when we were against God, he died for us. Beautiful, high, and this is how he proved his love for us. He gave himself. Now, look at verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath, through him. Now, Paul uses a phrase here that he will use four additional times in this chapter. Much more. He's going to use it four other times, and we'll see it every single time. You know what he means by that? He's saying it's better than you could ever imagine. We see in part, we prophesy in part, but folks, we just see the tip of the iceberg. It's better than you could possibly imagine. He's talking about justification. Christ taking a man who is sinful, who is wicked, who is against him, and making him to where he is clean and he is righteous and he is sinless before God. He says, it's better than you could ever imagine. And he's going to go on, and in these first couple of verses, he lists what I believe are four things, four consequences of justification. The first one we already saw, peace with God, in verse 1. And he talks about it in verse 9 here, save from wrath. Now, that's the first consequence of justification because Christ has justified his people. Here's something we'll never see and we will never understand and never know, the wrath of God. We have real peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we will never know that wrath. And you think about this. 
we see things through a glass darkly while we're here. The Lord gives us just, a, just enough. When we get to glory, all mysteries are going to be opened unto us. Everything that didn't logically make sense before, things we couldn't understand, they were just deep mysteries. It's all going to be open because we will have glorified minds. We will not have this old man to deal with, and everything will be open. There will be one mystery that will remain to us, something we won't know that everybody else will know. What's it like to be under the wrath of God? Everybody in hell is going to know that. They will feel it acutely. The Lord Jesus Christ knows it. He knows it more acutely than any man that has ever lived. But that one thing will be a mystery to us. What's it like to be under God's wrath? Because we will never know anything about it. Because Christ bore it all. Now look at that verse 1 again. This is the first consequence. It says, therefore being justified by faith. Now stop there for a second. Whose faith? Is it my faith that justifies me? Me looking to Christ, is that my justification? No. What did verse 9 say? Therefore, being justified by his blood, his death, him bearing my sins in his body, paying for them, putting them away, presenting me to God, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable, that's my justification. Where does faith fit in? I believe that. Wholeheartedly, that is my salvation. I'm looking to one man. One man and his accomplishment and his death, that is all I have before God. That is the justification of every believer. It is our peace with God, and that's the first consequence. Peace with God, but much more, much more. As if that wasn't enough, it gets better. Look at verse 2. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here's the second consequence we have because of justification. Because Christ paid our debt, we have access to grace. You think about that. What's that really saying? It's saying this. Because Christ has justified all his people, the floodgates of the Father's grace toward them, his mercy, his grace, that which he delights to show he can open it to them, and it does absolutely no damage to his perfect sense of justice. God cannot show mercy at the expense of his justice. He cannot be gracious at the expense of his justice. But because Christ has paid our debt, now we have access to grace. The Father can open those floodgates of grace and pour down upon us abounding grace, and it does no damage to his sense of justice. He remains perfectly just. And we have access to the Father. You think about this, that first consequence is peace, right? Real peace with God that cannot be broken. There's a lot of people on this earth I'm at peace with in the sense that I'm not in contention with them. And that is primarily because I haven't met most people. <laughs> you get people together, you're going to have contention. There's plenty of people on this earth I'm at peace with in the sense that I do not have contention with them, but I don't think anything about them. I don't really want them around. They're just people I've never met, not even a passing thought. And then you have my children. I am at peace with my children. Absolute peace with my children, but it's greater than that. They have access to me. In Christ, we have access to the Father. Not that he just tolerates our presence. He delights in our presence. Because Christ presents us holy and unblameable and unreprovable. 
And as much as I have a good will toward my children, as much as it is in my, my intention and as it is in my power to do them good, that is my intention. Father has a good will to all his people in Christ. And here's the thing. I can have the intention to do my kids good. That doesn't mean it's going to happen because I'm not sovereign. I'm not omnipotent. And I'm wicked, so I will do them wrong. He can't. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. Therefore, if he has a good will to a man, good will that man must have. So much so that goodness and mercy, it must follow us all the days of our life. We have access to grace. And read verse 2 again. It says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have a hope. And we have a hope in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see this. Is Christ presently glorified? Right now in heaven, is he presently glorified before his Father? Is his Father completely and utterly pleased in him? Does he have all the glory? He absolutely does. Here's our hope, folks. He's presently glorified. He has all that glory. That means he did all the work. That means we have these consequences, this peace with God. We have this access to this Father and access to grace. And you know what it cost us? Nothing. We get it freely. It costs us absolutely nothing. It's free grace. It's free justification. It's the free gift. That's what Paul will talk about later on in this chapter. It's absolutely free, no strings attached. We have it by the grace of God alone. Isn't that good? Here's the fourth consequence here. And if you wanted to put a label on this one or a title to it, it's this. Even our trials are blessed. Look at verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Paul says we glory in tribulations. Does that mean we enjoy the trial, the God-given trial? No. Sometimes I hear men use this term light afflictions because that's the term the scripture uses for our trials. But there's no reverence in their voice. And I want to say this. Yes, the scripture says our trials are light afflictions because compared to the suffering of our master, they are light afflictions. But there is nothing light about a trial. Todd said something. It was probably the most human thing I've heard him say from the pulpit ever. He just stopped and said, this life is very difficult. And it is. This life is very difficult, and it's full of trials. If you're a believer, you're going to have many, many trials. Those trials are a blessing to you, and they work in this respect. This is how we glory in the tribulation. We enjoy the end of the trial, the fruits of it. What happens in a trial? Two things. Number one, this. The Lord's faithfulness to us is re-revealed to us. You get put in the fire, in the trial. You can't get yourself out. You can't solve the problem. You can't stop the pain. And you are caused to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And just wait, patience. Just wait for his deliverance. And after a while, after the purpose of the trial has been accomplished, 
He delivers in one way or the other. He takes you out of this world. He solves the problem. He just might provide a livable solution. Paul said, I asked the Lord three times to remove this thing from me. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's how he lived. Well, however it may be, he delivers every single time. And you see again, he's always faithful to deliver me. Always faithful. The trial happens. The deliverance comes. Always faithful. And if he considers me and he thinks on me in those lesser things, those light afflictions that do not feel light, if he has given that much attention to me, but he always faithfully delivers me, that means in my greatest need, the need of my salvation, he's taking care of that one. He will be utterly and has been utterly faithful in that one too. And in seeing his faithfulness to us, we reach out and we grab a little tighter on him. Now, Paul changes gears a little bit. Look at verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, he's talked about justification by blood, by the death of Christ. He's talking about salvation by his life. Now, we shall be saved by his life. And notice this is a much more, much more. It's better than you could ever possibly imagine. In what respect, Paul? For every believer, this is the truth now. This is a much more. This is truth. The history of every believer is everything Jesus Christ has done. Now, we say that a lot and we hear that a lot, but Paul throws this much more in here because he wants you to stop there and say, consider this, that is the truth. It's not as if that what is the truth, that some sort of substitution is taking place and now it's as if you have the life of Christ. No, when the Father looks at you, if you're a believer, your history is the very obedience and the very righteousness and the very perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your life. That life has already been established. It's already been lived. It's already done. Christ in you, the hope of glory, he's our life. That new man that is in you, that new man who says this, look down at verse 11, says, and not only so, but we also joy in God through the Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement that word atonement is reconciliation. That new man that receives the reconciliation, he receives Christ. He receives him just as he is. He receives his salvation just as he provides it. That new man in you who believes, who loves, that's Christ in you. Much more, much more. These are high things. They are much greater than you could ever imagine. That is the very spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling in you, and that's right now. You are a place where Christ actually dwells. He is our life. Now, Paul's going to use the rest of this chapter to do something that I never would have thought to do. He's going to compare and contrast Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason he's going to do that is because God only deals with two men. He deals with Adam and he deals with the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody else, he deals with them in the person of their representative. There's only one comparison between Christ and Adam. Only one thing that can be compared. They are both heads of peoples. They are both heads of families. Every man, every human to ever live was in Adam. 
When God created Adam, he made the entire human race, every man stored up in him. He's the father of the entire human race, that family. Christ is the father, the head of his elect, of his people, the spiritual race. That is the only comparison that we have. Everything else is a contrast, a stark contrast. So look down here, look at verse 12. Paul begins with Adam. He says, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We were all in Adam. Adam was given a law, a rule. One, don't eat the fruit. And he did. He disobeyed God and he died. He died spiritually taking on a sinful, evil, dead nature that cannot perform the acts of spiritual life. This is Adam's inheritance to his posterity, that wicked, sinful, dead nature that we all are born with, we are all conceived with. And before anyone questions the fairness of that, look at the last five words, for that all have sinned. This was a collective rebellion. All of humanity in one accord, all united in this thought, we will not have this man to reign over us. So before we question the fairness of that, just take God at his word. You did it. I did it. There's nothing unfair about this. The way we are born and conceived, it's exactly what I deserve. It's what I earned. Go on. Look at verse 13. And these two verses demand their own message. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the submultitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, like I said, this demands its own message, but what Paul is doing here is responding to a human rebuttal of the justice of God and imputing sin. And here's the point he makes. We'll just get straight to the point. The law always has been. The law is written on every man's heart. Every human born in this world, save the Lord Jesus Christ, is born with two things. A wicked, sinful heart and the law written on it. That's why his conscience burns when he does evil. It bears witness that God hates sin. And that's why everybody dies, folks. That's why everybody from the young to the old, everybody sees physical death because of sin. There's no injustice with God. Everyone is born this way. And the best way... I can explain this as this. Why did Cain murder Abel? Did he murder Abel and then therefore became a murderer? Cain was born a murderer and therefore he murdered his brother. And that's the difference. Now look here. Verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Now, that's a, that's a strange way to say something, isn't it? Not as the offense, so also is the free gift. What Paul's saying here is you can compare these things, but it's a harsh comparison. One is so much more glorious than the other, and they work in opposites. That's what he's saying here. Go on reading. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more. This is so much greater. The grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Much more, the grace of God in Christ through his free gift, 
much greater than the death that Adam plunged us into. I'm going to speak hypothetically for a second, okay? And just follow me on this. Let's say for a second that Adam didn't eat the fruit. Let's say for a second he dis didn't disobey God. The very best Adam could do was pass on an innocent nature to his children. That was it. Not holy, not immutable. That means in every generation past that, they would have had the opportunity to fall. It would have always been there. And I recognize that the fall is all according to the purpose and the will of God. This is hypothetical. But the best he could do was pass on an innocent nature. Much more in Christ, through his free gift, we're restored to a position that is way better than Adam had it. Adam was innocent and he was upright, but he could fall and he proved that. We can never fall away. We can never be separated from God. That peace we have with the Father, it can never go away because of this abounding grace through the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it's much more. It's much greater. Look at verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. Once again, you can compare these things, but it's a harsh comparison. They're opposites. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Adam was one man. He committed one act of disobedience, and through that one act of disobedience, he condemned the entire human race. Christ was one God-man. He completed one act of obedience, his cross going and dying under his father's wrath according to the purpose and will of God. And through that, he brought in life to everybody he died for. What's the difference? Their contrasts, their differences, it's the sin. Adam committed one sin, just one, and it was enough to plunge the entire human race into darkness. Christ's salvation is of many offenses. Every single sin that every one of his people ever committed, he had to bring that into his body. He had to bear the wrath. Whatever it feels like to experience an eternity in hell, he had to experience that times ten thousands and thousands and thousands for every one of his people, just a few hours on that cross. Adam committed one sin and plunged the whole human race into condemnation. Christ paid for all the sins of everybody he died for, putting them away by the blood of his cross. Now, look here. Verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. The key word there is reign. When Adam plunged us into darkness, death reigned. The sinful, evil nature reigned. A man who the Lord just passes by and does not intervene for, he cannot change his circumstances. Death reigns over him. He cannot believe. He cannot love. He cannot do anything to please God. It is impossible. But in Christ, life reigns in us. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we cannot not. I recognize we say, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I cannot not believe that he's able. I, I stagger sometimes as to whether what he did, he did for me. I worry that, that he won't receive me. But here's the thing. Here's what I don't stagger at. He's able. He's utterly able. And you cannot not believe that. 
It's impossible because life reigns in you. Look at this, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. Key phrase, all men, all condemned in Adam. But are all men justified? No. Well, why does it say all men? It's speaking of the head. Everybody in the head experienced this thing. The entire human race was in Adam. Therefore, all men were condemned in Adam. But everybody who is in Christ, all men, every one of them in Christ, his elect, all of them have life. And it can't be taken away. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one many shall be made righteous. Key word, made. This is the mystery of the gospel, the mystery that's answered. A man who is made a sinner, a filthy, wretched sinner before God, how do you make him perfect and holy and acceptable unto God? The answer is Christ. Salvation is found one place in him, that's it. And look at the conclusion of the matter, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The law entered. When did the law first enter? Somebody says it's Sinai with Moses. Nope. In the hearts? Nope. When did the law first enter with Adam? Adam had the first law. Don't eat the fruit. Ever wonder why the law, why the Lord gave Adam a law in the first place? Why he created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the first place? Why he allowed the fall of man in the first place? Folks, this is all according to his purpose. It's all our fault. We sinned. We ate the fruit. We disobeyed God. It's all according to the purpose of God. The law entered that the offense might abound so that grace would much more abound to make his people holy, unblameable, unreprovable, to make them to where they can stand before God eternally, no hope of falling. It took the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the fall is for the cross. Now, you know who gets offended by that and questions the fairness of that? A person where sin does not abound. A person who is not a sinner. You know who doesn't get offended by that? Who doesn't question the fairness of that? Somebody where sin abounds. Because where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And if you're a place where sin abounds, every bit of you, under that faculty of sin, you can't get out. The grace of God is upon you, and you have the very life of Jesus Christ. We'll stop there.